You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Hi, everybody. Liam here. Over the course of this podcast, I've covered quite a bit of Berkeley history. I've done stories about Ohlone shell mounds, the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, student activism in the 50s and 60s, uh, the punk scene, housing discrimination, lots of stories. But when I was working on my last episode, the one about the founding of Oakland, I realized that I didn't know very much about the origins of Berkeley, like how it became a town. Kind of embarrassing for an East Bay historian, right? So to remedy that, I picked up the definitive book on the topic, which is called Berkeley, A City in History. Then I called up the author, Charles Wallenberg, a man with deep knowledge and deep local roots, as you'll hear in this interview. So a few days ago, we met up in Live Oak Park, not far from where Mr. Wallenberg lives, and he gave me a sort of crash course in Berkeley history, roughly spanning from the Gold Rush era up through about the Great Depression. And I'm going to keep this intro short because we cover a lot of territory in this conversation. Uh, Berkeley's first businesses, the socialist mayor, some very ironic squatters, uh, Bernard Maybeck, single-family zoning laws, Phoebe Hurst, uh, a famous urban legend about the Claremont Hotel, even an extremely symbolic sword fight. And I don't know if there's an overarching lesson to all this, except to say that a lot of the conflicts that dominate Berkeley's political landscape today have been present in one form or another since the very beginning. And looking at some of these early phases of Berkeley history, zooming in on the city's cultural DNA, it does help make sense of this very unique sometimes very frustrating place. This is East Bay Yesterday. Stay tuned. All right, I am here in Live Oak Park, actually, in beautiful Berkeley, California, with Charles Wallenberg, the author of Berkeley, A City in History, which is just a wonderful overview of... uh, Berkeley's history, and I think Berkeley is most well-known for probably the 60s, the politics of that era, but your book takes it all the way back to before Berkeley was even established. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, the Ohlone history goes back thousands and thousands of years, but what I want to do today is kind of focus on, you know, roughly the first hundred years or so of once the, um, the the town started being established, um, you know, what we think of now is Berkeley. But before we get into Berkeley's history, I'd love to know a little bit about you, your background. So, uh, Chuck, tell me a little bit about yourself and your connection to Berkeley and how you came to write this book in the first place. Well, I, I grew up in San Francisco, although I have family in Berkeley. So even as I was growing up in San Francisco, I was always visiting Berkeley. And then I came here to Cal and really, I've been here ever since. And I, I ended up and eventually getting my doctorate degree at Cal. I taught at Laney College and then at Vista College, which became Berkeley City College. And I've, I've taught history there, California, social history primarily. 
And, you know, I got interested in Berkeley and started teaching a little course in Berkeley history, a one-unit course, and the one-unit course turned into the book. Wow. And so let's start during the gold rush era. Um, In the book, there's a little anecdote you tell about how in 1852, there was a man named Domingo Peralta who was arrested for assaulting two squatters <laughs> with a sword uh, in what is now Berkeley, uh, before you know this yeah. was just a, an unincorporated part of, of Contra Costa. Um, so I feel like that conflict between Peralta and these squatters sort of symbolizes you know, this major transformation that was happening in the East Bay during that era. Can you give me a little historical context for that clash? Back in, in 1820, all of what today is Berkeley, Albany, Emeryville, Oakland, Piedmont, Alameda, all of that was given by the Spanish government as a land grant to the Peralta family. And the Peraltas then eventually kind of divided up the land among four brothers. And the northern portion of the grant was uh, held by Juan Domingo Peralta, or Jose Domingo Peralta, I should say. And that included well, all of what today is Berkeley and Albany. In 1848, the United States basically conquered California from Mexico. And then virtually at the same time, the gold rush began. There were maybe 10 or 12,000 non-indigenous people living in California in 1849 when gold was discovered, or 1848. By the end of 1849, there were well, well over 100,000 people. And these people came and just started squatting on land. Um, particularly, you know, you'd go up and mine gold and that didn't work out, so you just come down, there's nice land around and it seemed to be vacant. There was this tradition in the American frontier of, um, of squatters' rights, you know, if the land isn't owned by anybody else or if it's only owned by native peoples, that's, that's like that. And so there was this huge amount of land and people began squatting on what was to become Oakland and Berkeley and, and East Bay. And the Peraltas attempted to <laughs> defend their land. And, and that particular incident is just one example of Domingo Peralta trying to defend his, his land grant. Um, finally, in order to try to resolve that conflict, the, the federal government established what was called the California Land Commission. And people who had land grants like the Peraltas had to go before the commission, prove that their land grant was valid, but they did, the Peraltas were some of the first people to do it. And after about a year, the commission approved their application. But then the, that approval could then go through the whole federal court process. And without going into a lot of detail, the Peralta land grant case went on for 25 years. <laughs> it wasn't until 1877 that it was finally adjudicated. In the meantime, local law enforcement officials said, well, we, we won't enforce the land grant because it hasn't been approved yet. So. People like the Peraltas were just in a a no-win situation. So as early as 1853, Domingo Peralta sold all of his 12 or 14,000 acres to a uh, Anglo land speculator named Hall McAllister. And he kept, Domingo kept about 300 acres for himself. And then McAllister got all these squatters who had been squatting on Domingo's land to finally pay him to get some kind of title to the land. Um, Domingo got about $80,000 for his 
12 or 14,000 acres, and that didn't even pay off his debts. I was going to say a lot of that money ended up going to lawyers' fees, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's one of the reasons why they had to settle was they couldn't possibly afford the lawyers, not to mention property taxes and a whole bunch of other things, and they couldn't defend the they couldn't defend the land against squatters. Eventually, Domingo even even temporarily lost the 300 acres because he couldn't pay his property taxes. He finally sold some land and got 200 of the 300 acres back. But by the time he died in 1865, the family didn't even have enough money to pay for his burial fees. And by sometime in the 1860s, the Peraltas owned no land at all in, in Berkeley. And just, just kind of one other twist in that. The court case continued and in many cases, the court case was continued by the squatters because since they had finally bought the land, that land would only be valid if the land grant itself was originally valid. So, by, so the, 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 in the 1870s, you had people carrying on the Peralta land grant case who were the squatters who had actually deposed the, the Peraltas. Oh, that's such an ironic twist. Um, so some of the first people who settled the Anglo people, as you say, uh, who settled in Berkeley during this era are folks whose names a lot of current residents might recognize. Uh, folks like Francis Kittredge Shattuck and George Blake. Of course, there's still you know streets named after these types of guys, and there's many other examples as well. So who were those people? What drew them to the Bay Area? Where were they coming from? Give me a little uh, overview of the kind of origins of the types of people that were settling in Berkeley before it was known as Berkeley. Well, again, this is the initial settlement comes, of these people comes during the gold rush. So these are people who come from all over the United States and in some cases from big parts of, of Latin America and eventually Asia and, uh, and Europe. But uh, Francis Kittredge Shattuck and um, George Blake and William Hillegas and a na man named James Leonard. For some reason, he never got a street named after him. <laughs> but they were kind of four partners. They'd originally come to mine gold, and that didn't work out. So they came down, and they basically squatted on Peralta land. Uh, the state had passed a law saying that you could, you could establish 160 acres of land that wasn't occupied by anybody else. And so Shattuck and those guys said, well, the Peraltas aren't really occupying this land. But anyway, um, for many years, uh, particularly Shattuck lived in Oakland, and he was actually a, a pretty important political figure in Oakland. He served on the city council. But in the, I guess, the late 1860s and early 70s, he moved to Berkeley, established a large home in what today would be the Shattuck Hotel in Berkeley, and then that site. And he became one of the, he became probably the most important figure in that early period. But for many years, when he and, and Blake and Hillegas were living in Oakland, Leonard was using was, was farming their land. And then by the time Shattuck moved here, they began to develop the land. They mm -hmm. began to do the real estate development. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there were just, there were lots of other people coming, too. Some of the people, in, particularly in the West Berkeley, were, were Irish immigrants, Michael Curtis, for example, the Brennan family. So there were all sorts of people coming. And either they came as squatters or they came shortly afterwards and began buying the land from, from the McAllister interests. So when I was reading your book, I was actually kind of surprised to read that Berkeley wasn't actually incorporated as an official city until 1878, April Fool's Day, That's right. 1878, <laughs> which is a great little factoid. But um, the reason I was surprised is because Oakland had been designated a city, you know, almost three decades earlier in 1852. And so during that 
interval, you know, from the 1850s up until almost 1880 when Berkeley's developing. What took it so long to become officially a city? You know, why didn't the residents want to incorporate and have themselves designated as a city uh, prior to that? I mean, all of this kind of goes back again to the gold rush, and the gold rush creates this sort of instant city of San Francisco. San Francisco had like 400 residents in 1848. It already had 25 or 30,000 residents by the end of 1849, and it kept on growing. And San Francisco creates an almost, it's an instant city, and it creates a kind of an instant metropolitan region of little, initially little settlements around the bay that are connected to San Francisco by the bay itself. Mm-hmm. And Oakland was was one of the most prominent of those. Right. And a lot of those little cities were like feeding resources to San Francisco, right. essentially, right? Like exactly. getting uh, lumber and things like that. Lumber and and, and food, develop. you know, right. farming. Uh, and and one of the places that developed pretty early in 1853 and 1854, just as the Peraltas were losing their land, was a little informal community, unincorporated community called Ocean View. And it was located along what today is, is the West Berkeley shoreline. And there was a man named John Jacobs who established a, a wharf there. And that meant that the farmers that were developing in the flatlands of Berkeley could sell their goods to San Francisco. It, it gave them access to San mm-hmm. Francisco. And another uh, former seaman by the name of William Bowen opened a little store and a little uh, inn and kind of restaurant along what was called officially Contra Costa Road, but it was actually the the path between the Peralta land grant and Rancho San Pablo to the north. And it was called San Pablo Road, and it's what today we call San Pablo Avenue. Wow. And maybe what today would be about the corner of San Pablo Avenue and Delaware Street. Bowen established this inn and, and store. And those those two institutions, the wharf and the store, begin the development of this informal unincorporated community of Ocean View. And as early as 1855, you began to have industries in San Francisco looking for cheaper cheaper land and, and, and resources. And so uh, a couple of guys moved a, a grist mill, pioneer grist mill from San Francisco to Ocean View in 1855. You know, this might be a, kind of a silly question, but what is grist exactly? Well, it, it, it turns, I, I, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, it's, you, you actually turn grain into a kind of a meal and it can okay. be, it can might be used for food, it might be used for glue and stuff like that. Got it, okay. But it, 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 it's, it's processing the grain, it's okay. taking the grain and processing it so that okay. it can be used for some, some other purpose. Mm-hmm. It can be turned into flour, for example. Gotcha. Um, but in the, anyway, um, and, and that, that kind of begins the tradition of Ocean View being not only a farming community, but also an industri- a working class and industrial community. And the next year, uh, the Haywood family establishes a lumber yard in Berkeley. They, they were cutting lumber in Sonoma County, Redwoods, bringing it down, distributing it from, from Berkeley. They, they worked with Jacobs to increase the size of the pier so that it could be more effective. And then by the 1870s, the, the main line of the Central Pacific or the Southern Pacific Railroad went right through West Berkeley. And that stimulated even more industry and, and larger industries. So you had this informal community of Ocean View developing as both a farming community, but as a working class, light and medium industrial community. Right. And at the same time, uh, beginning in the 1850s, a um, private college called the College of California was established in Oakland. And it was established to provide a kind of a Christian education for young men. The idea was you're gonna provide the, the new elite 
of California, the, you know, the, and it was kind of patterned after New England Christian colleges. Right, like the, the founders of the um, California college knew that if they were going to draw kind of movers and shakers out to California, those people would want to have access to education for their children even way back then, and so they would have to, uh, instead of having a brain drain where people might be always sending their student-aged children back to Harvard or Yale or something like that on the East Coast, they could develop a, a reason to keep them here in California. That was part of it. The other part of it was these were these, the, 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 the main organizers, uh, Samuel Hopkins and um, Henry Durant, they were, they were Protestant ministers. And they were shocked by the immorality and, and chaos of, of Gold Rush, California. So part of the idea was that they would produce a new elite <laughs> that would kind of civilize and Christianize this, this Oh, that's this funny. Society. Yeah, like San Francisco has this notorious Barbary Coast yeah. with all the, uh, you know, brothels and card games exactly. and, you know, people shooting each other and getting shanghaied. So over here in the East Bay, they're like, we're going to have a place for the people who want to raise good Christian families. Right. Huh? Okay. And so they, 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 they initially located in Oakland, but the, the hall that they... Uh, that they rented turned out it was being used at night for a dance hall. <laughs> and they began to say, you know, maybe what we need is we get get away from these towns. We need a kind of a, you know, a park-like campus right. somewhere. They wanted to keep the students away from any of those temptations, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, initially a lot of the early Ivy League colleges were kind of based on that same theory. Mm -hmm. So um, beginning in 1857, they began buying land from a man named Oren Simmons, who had a... a a ranch on the kind of the on, on the base of what to now we call the Berkeley Hills and running right through that ranch was Strawberry Creek and when you looked out from it you looked right out through the Golden Gate and so they began buying and eventually they bought his entire ranch a few hundred acres and part of it they, they were going to set aside to be the campus for the new institution and the other part they, they decided they would develop it as a real estate development and use the profits from that real estate development to pay for the college. Hmm. And so they lay out what today would be the south of campus neighborhood. They even, even the streets, some of them go all the way back to that. They, they named the north-south streets under men of science, after men of science in, in um, alphabetical order. So it was Audubon, which is now College Avenue, and then Bowditch, and then Choate, which is now Telegraph Avenue, and then um, Dana, Ellsworth, Fulton, hmm. and they, the um, East-West streets were named after men of letters in alphabetical order. So it was Addison, Bancroft, Channing, Dwight, and a few more streets were kind of put in after that. But in th those streets show up on a map, at least, as early as, as about 1860. And they chose as the name of this new community that they were developing, Berkeley, after Bishop uh, Barclay, an Irish Anglican bishop who had um, spent some time in the Americas, turned out to be a, a slave owner in Rhode Island, among other things. But um, he was a, a philosopher and a poet, and one of his poems talked about westward the course of empire shall go and that idea, these Americans fired up with the concept of manifest destiny and they'd gotten all the way to the Pacific Coast, the idea of a new college and a new community looking out through the Golden Gate to the Pacific where America's new destiny, you know, all that kind of fit into the 
spirit of this thing and, and this, this idea of naming this community Berkeley. And um, the problem was that nobody came. <laughs> In other words, they couldn't sell virtually any of their lots, any of their land. They couldn't, they, they, the, the college was going broke in Oakland. And then in 1867, they suddenly got a, a kind of a, a savior when the legislature of California decided to establish a university. And it was based upon the, a, the land-grant college concept that had been established by Congress, where if you established a university, you got free government land that you could then sell and use the money to develop your university. The land wasn't the land that the college was on. It was hundreds of thousands of acres of good agricultural land. So there was not only a desire to establish a university, there was a desire to get some good Central Valley land in the hands of private property mm -hmm. owners. And so uh, the legislature established the idea and said, we got to search around for a campus. And basically what the College of California said was, look, if you incorporate us as your liberal arts part of the college, and you pay off our debts, we will give you our Berkeley campus as the new location. And in 1868, the state, the state agreed to that. And so it took about five years to build the campus, but in 1873, the university moved to what is still the Cal campus. And when that happened, finally that community to the south began to develop. And so by the middle 1870s, you had a campus community and then you had a mile or two of open space and fields, and then you had the Ocean View, which had been been there, you know, for almost 20 years by that time. Yeah, and these were two very different communities really? because, as you mentioned, the Ocean View community was more uh, industrial, uh, more working class, and certainly more ethnically diverse, whereas the campus community was more kind of academic types. These upper, more middle class white Anglo-Saxon Protestant types. So how was the decision made to merge these two very different communities into a single entity known as Berkeley? Well, I mean, for one thing, almost immediately there was great conflict between the two communities. A lot of it based upon exactly what you said, this kind of a working class, heavily immigrant community versus a white Protestant middle and upper middle class, well-educated uh, community. Um, and at some degree, it's what we still talk about, about the difference between the flatlands and the hills even today. And there were, there were specific things, too. For example, the university dammed up Strawberry Creek for a, a, a water supply, and that meant that all the, um, all the wells of the farmers and, and people down at Ocean View went down. Right, yeah, California's water wars go pretty much all the way back right. to the origins of our state. Right. And, you know, one of the things, the, the, uh, the legislature passed a two-mile no-alcohol zone around the university to stop the students from becoming drunken fools, which they were doing anyway. But that meant that suddenly the, all those working-class bars in Ocean View had to be closed down, too. Oh, my God. And I'm guessing those blue-collar workers weren't too happy about that. They weren't too happy. And so they, they protested. So then the legislature said, okay, we'll only draw the line one mile around the university. Huh. And that meant that the Ocean View taverns could open up, but it also meant a bunch of new taverns right at the one-mile line <laughs> opened up for the university students to yes, come Yes, the down. students could uh, still crawl back home after right. a night of hard drinking. And so then the university said that all of our students are going down and being corrupted by those working-class kids 
And the wow. working class family said, all of our kids are being corrupted by those university kids coming down and getting <laughs> drunk. So there's all, all sorts of things yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, before we go further with the establishment of Berkeley, I, I want to pause real quick on this issue of the... Um, the alcohol law, because there's a famous bit of uh, Berkeley lore that I've heard of. Maybe it's an urban legend. Maybe you can yeah. prove it or disprove it. But there's a story that I've heard that uh, for a long time, the famous Claremont Hotel, which is kind of on the border of Oakland and, and Berkeley, uh, wasn't allowed to sell alcohol because they had been told they were within this one mile radius, the no booze zone. And the story goes that a student, I believe it was a young woman, I, I might be wrong about that, but measured it, like stepped it off, <laughs> figured out that Claremont was just outside the one mile radius alerted the management that they legally could sell alcohol and the owners of the Claremont were so grateful to the student that they gave them free drinks for life have you heard anything about this do you know if I've heard the same story and I, I haven't heard I, but I haven't I haven't ever seen anything that actually documents it one way or the other so I can't tell yeah. you well, but I but I, I I do believe that when they finally figured it out it wasn't the whole hotel it was in other words, they had to move their their restaurant and bar to to the southernmost part of the hotel because it was only there that they got they got beyond the one mile limit. Wow. I, I've heard that. That's great. That's one of those stories you really want to be yeah, true. Yeah. That'd be a I'd good love, way to I'd, get I'd, free I'd, drinks. I'd, I'd love to find some <laughs> some evidence that that was really true, but I, I just don't know. But it, it's certainly possible. Hi everybody. Just jumping in real quick because I did a little fact checking after we recorded this interview. And according to a 2020 SFGate article by Katie Dowd, this urban legend that we were just talking about is false. Sadly, it appears that the mythical student in that story never really existed. And uh, I'll link to that article in my show notes if you want to read the whole story. All right, no fake news on East Bay yesterday. Now, back to my interview with Charles Wallenberg. You don't think of Berkeley as being like this teetotaling, prohibition-toting town, but that was certainly in the, in the very origins. It's in its DNA. Yeah, it was, although, uh, again, the, and eventually in, in 1906, you know, uh, more than a decade before the United States be, uh, became established prohibition, Berkeley established prohibition within its boundaries. Oh. But there's no evidence that that was ever very strictly enforced. That is, you know, that's another ironic thing because we think of Berkeley a lot of the times as being kind of ahead on the curve of these mm -hmm. national trends. Like Berkeley was a pioneer in, you know, recycling, for example, and school busing in, uh, you know, previous generations. But then if you turn it back more than a century, they were ahead of the curve on these very conservative prohibition laws. Well, but, you know, I mean, at, uh, for example, Frances Willard School in Berkeley is named after she was the head of the WCTU, the work, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. But, you know, that that union was, I mean, a lot of their arguments were based upon what we would say would be very progressive pro-women things. One of the things they were fighting against was drunken husbands beating up their wives all the wow. time. Yeah. And um, she was also a strong supporter of women's suffrage, too. So, you know, the, the, what, yeah. uh, what, what we think of as conservative measures now were thought of by many people as progressive reforms during that time. You know, that's a really good point. Sometimes we look back on these historical issues through a modern lens. Yeah. And it's important to remember that things weren't uh, necessarily politically divided then the same way they are now. Mm -hmm. um, things are always kind of shifting and changing and there's, you know, reasons behind something like trying to ban alcohol that might have a good uh, basis in reality. Like if you're seeing this epidemic of domestic violence, that, that would certainly, um, you know, raise, raise concerns about the prevalence of, yeah. of bars and, and alcohol consumption in, in a place. 
Lake Berkeley. All right, so there's these two very different towns, Ocean View and the, and the Berkeley campus area. Tell me about the unification. How did these uh, you know, two very different communities end up, end up connecting? By 1878, Oakland was thinking about the idea of expanding its borders all the way north here to include the new university. Wow. Because that's what it had been doing um, to other little unincorporated villages around Oakland. I mean, there used to be towns like Brooklyn and Clinton that were absorbed into Oakland east of Lake Merritt. And so suddenly, in spite of all their differences, the citizens of Ocean View and the citizens of of Berkeley, of the campus community, Mm -hmm. both had something in common, and that was the common enemy of... (laughs) of Oakland. Uh, they also, needed to team up, huh? Yeah. Okay. Also, also, I think in spite of all the conflicts, for example, as soon as the university got established, it became the biggest employer, not only in, in, in the campus community, but also of Ocean View. A lot of working class people in Ocean View got jobs building the new university buildings, maintaining them, all of that. So there are a lot of things in, that they had in common as mm-hmm. well. But I think it was probably the thing that finally cemented the alliance was this fear of Oakland. And Ah. so in 1878, there was an election in which both the voters of Ocean View and the voters of the campus community agreed to come together and incorporate the new city at Berkeley. But it was a kind of a funny looking city because there was this, there was this population up around the university. Then there was still open space of um, farms and, and then a mile or two west, there was this another community of Ocean View, or now it was called West Berkeley. Yeah. And it took uh, the rest of the century and on into the first early 20th century before that middle area was finally was finally filled in. Uh, well, let's talk about that uh, era when it was filled in, which is really kind of the early 1900s. You write in the book about how the biggest population growth in Berkeley's history happened really between about 1900 and 1920, just a huge explosion, a huge influx of new residents. So if, if someone was here in Berkeley, you know, living during that era, what would they have seen looking out as this transformation was unfolding across the land? Well, I mean, back in, back in 1900, there were about 13,000 people living in Berkeley, and it was still a, basically a rural place. I mean, there was an urban concentration up around the university. There was industry and a town down in Ocean View, but there were... There really were farms in Berkeley, a lot of farms in Berkeley, particularly in that middle area. So Berkeley was still a rural place. In Do you know what kind of farms they were? Was it mostly like dairy farms or was it like agri- growing fruit orchards and vegetables and things there like were, that? There were some growing of orchards and vegetables, but I think it was more, there was a lot of grain uh, grown okay. and stuff. I think the, you know, the, the, the soil in a lot of Berkeley is pretty heavy um, adobe-like soil and mm. it's, it's, it's not as good for orchard and and um, intensive cultivated vegetables than than many other places. Mm -hmm. But um, there were also horse ranches and there were were cattle being grown here too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was still basically a kind of a rural place and certainly there'd been almost no development of the hills at all as as late as 1900. Um, Between 1900 and 1910, just in those 10 years, Berkeley's population tripled. It went from 13,000 to 40,000 in just 10 years. And then between 1910 and 1920, it went from 40,000 up to almost 60,000. So it's really during those years that Berkeley has transformed from a rural town into an urban place. 
by, by 1910 already, and certainly by 1920, Berkeley is part of the urban core of the Bay Area. You know, Berkeley, oh. Oakland, San Francisco, that, that's part of a, an what, urban core. Was the key system connecting Berkeley to the rest of the East Bay and San Francisco by then? Yeah, there, there, I think there are three big reasons why that growth occurred. One of them was the San Francisco earthquake and fire, which caused a tremendous number of, of refugees. Mm-hmm. The East Bay was certainly shaken up, but it was, it, it, urban life was able to kind of survive without too much disruption in the East Bay compared to San Francisco, where the earthquake was not only more intense, but it was followed by that huge fire. Yeah, all those big brick buildings just weren't, uh, weren't built to withstand such a great, right. great shaking of the planet. And even more so, then this fire came, and the fire wiped out maybe, oh, I don't know, more than a quarter of all the buildings wow. in the city that hadn't, if they hadn't been destroyed by the earthquake, they were destroyed by the fire. Mm-hmm. And that, those were the most heavily populated parts of the city. So yeah. thousands. And just real quick for anyone who doesn't know about this fire, part of it was completely unnecessary, right? Wasn't it like the Army Corps of Engineers that were intentionally blowing up buildings with dynamite in order to kind of create fire breaks so they could, it was like a burn the city to save the city yeah. type uh, strategy? It wasn't the Army Corps of Engineers, it was the Army itself. The Army that, itself, okay. In, in, wow. in the Presidio. Wow. Yeah, and, and actually there, there's some debate about that. I mean, we don't, we don't know what would have happened if they hadn't have done that, but wow. I think most most experts now say that that was probably the wrong thing to do. I mean, it, w- it wouldn't have been that the fire wouldn't have spread anyway, but it probably spread even more. And they did, you know, they were actually creating damage along with the fire. Certainly a very counterintuitive strategy yeah. towards uh, preventing destruction. Yeah. But anyway, that, you know, there were thousands of refugees that came to the East Bay, and most of them, or a lot of them, eventually went back to San Francisco, but a lot of them didn't. And a lot of them did come, did come to Berkeley. And, and even more to, you know, Oakland more than doubled its population from 1900 mm-hmm. to 1910 mm-hmm. as well. Um, then the university was going through a period of tremendous growth during this time. And then finally, and, and maybe the most important of all, after 1900, um, or even in the beginning in the 1890s, the, the technology of electric trains, of electric streetcars and trains were developed. And what developed out of that was the key system, uh, a, a East Bay-wide uh, private transit system mm-hmm. and the whole idea of the key system was not only to transport people but to open up new areas for right. for real estate development absolutely and huge parts of, of Berkeley were opened up with the key system and in order to respond to the key system um, competition the Southern Pacific which had been running steam local steam trains in this area also switched to electric trains so you had two big electric rail lines and they created the possibility of people being able to live in Berkeley and commute not just down to Oakland, but also to San Francisco. And by 1915, you could go from a key system train and then transfer to a fast ferry to San Francisco. You go from downtown Berkeley to downtown San Francisco in about 35 minutes. Oh, it's better than today uh, on days with a lot of traffic, which is yeah. most days yeah. by far. Maybe, so. maybe, maybe BART is a little bit better than that, yeah. but, but even not no, much better. And so, you know, you had already had a, a, a place in Berkeley that had a campus community around the, and you had Ocean View and West Berkeley, but now you had Berkeley also being developed as a commuter suburb to some degree as well. And so I think those three things, the, the refugees, the growth of the university, and 
the big expansion that's occurring, not just in Berkeley, but in Oakland and all over the East Bay because of these new transit lines. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that, are, that explain that population increase. And I know there was some growth of the West Berkeley industrial exactly. zone at that time, too. Like, what were the big industries that were popping up along the uh, East Bay shoreline during that era? Well, as I say, you, you go all the way back to the 1850s, and you have these small industries like the grist mill or the lumber yard. But it's when the, when the railroad begins to go through there by the late 1870s that you can then begin to have industries that can you know, have statewide or even national distribution. And uh, one of the biggest ones was the Standard Soap Company, which was a mm-hmm. big soap company, which continued in one form or another in West Berkeley until the 1980s. It, it, it was bought out by Colgate Palmolive. Wow. And, there was uh, it was a there was a big watch company. There were um, there were a lot of different kind of wood, not only lumber companies, but uh, wood planing mills and that sort of thing. So th- those were some big things. But I think in general, and 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 then you did also you you began to develop um, metal industries. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, they were not really big industries. They were kind of middle-sized and small industrial. In other words, they, they, these weren't national corporations, but it's certainly a part of the, of the, the Bay Area's smokestack industry core. And mm-hmm. we don't think about that today, but the Bay Area had a big local smokestack industry at one time with, Absolutely. with, with traditional blue-collar workers. I know a lot of that was centered around uh, Emeryville, too, with places like Judson Steel. Yeah, well, in Emory, see, see, Emeryville, what the industries wanted was places where they didn't have high taxes and where they didn't have strong city governments that yeah. would limit them. No environmental regulations. Right. <laughs> so they didn't want to be in Berkeley. They didn't want to be in Oakland. And so they yeah. kind of create their own little little industrial. Yeah. Uh, little libertarian right. business zone. And then many of them didn't want to live either in Berkeley or Oakland. So they create Piedmont, you know, so they... <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a, that's a whole other story. Uh, I tried to do an episode about Piedmont history a couple years ago, and no one wanted to talk to me. <laughs> um, so you, you were talking about the, uh, the huge expansion of the university during this era. And in the book, you write about how two of the most uh, influential people really in the history of the, the university were Phoebe Hurst and Benjamin Wheeler. So uh, tell me a little bit about these two figures. What made them so influential and how is their legacy still reverberating through, through the university and the, and the city of Berkeley today? Well, when, when the university moved to Berkeley in the 1870s, it was a very small university. It was a few hundred students. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was troubled. I mean, there were there were conflicts over what the philosophy should be. There were conflicts over whether the whether they should be run by the regents or run by you know the state board of education. Mm-hmm. Um, was that like philosophical conflict, more like liberal arts versus more like kind of trade school type, like uh, you know, and, and uh, the, vocational. like vocational, yeah, the hard yeah. sciences. The the, the land grant colleges allowed the colleges to to teach the normal traditional liberal arts courses. But in addition to that, they were supposed to teach practical courses in um, agriculture and mechanics, it was oh, called. Okay, A&M. A&M. And so, whereas the kind of the College of California was brought as the liberal arts part of the new university, they tried to establish agricultural and mechanical education. And there was a big debate about what that should be. Um, unions and working people said it should be vocational education. You should teach people how to be better, better farmers and better mechanics. 
Whereas uh, people in the university said, no, we want to start teaching engineering. Mm -hmm. We want to start teaching agronomy, you know, scientific mm -hmm. agriculture. Okay. And so there was that kind of a conflict that went on and on and on. Then, you know, the, the students were often very irresponsible, drunken, <laughs> rioting, and that caused a lot of hard feelings about the university. And there was a lot of internal conflict between faculty members and, mm. and the administration. So I, I guess you was could say- Was it all men at that time? No, okay. the, the, the university from its very beginning said it was um, co-educational. Okay. And it, there were women students, but we'll, we'll get one of the, one of the many imp, uh, influences of Phoebe Apperson Hearst was to turn that into reality. And, gotcha. But at least in theory, it was supposed to be co-educational from the beginning. So for much of that period of the 1870s down, say, to the 1890s, it was a very troubled university. It was, a, it was a basically a, West, a kind of troubled Western Cal college, you know, who, it wasn't Cal that we think of today. I'm, I'm picturing like a cross between like the Wild West and like Animal House. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it was very similar to a lot of the Western, what are now, you know, state universities in Western states. That's kind of the same kind of thing was happening with them during that same, okay. that same period. But around the end of the 1890s, um, the enrollment began to grow fairly dramatically. Some of the inner, inner conflicts were finally sort of not resolved, at least papered over. And politically, it began to get more support and the legislature began giving it more money. And at about that time, Phoebe Apperson Hearst uh, was appointed as the first woman regent of the university. She um, was the widow of George Hearst, who was a very wealthy, powerful mining magnate. She was the mother of William Randolph Hearst, the, the future media magnate. But she was, a very, she was a power unto herself. She had been a school teacher in Missouri before she married George Hearst. And she was always really interested in learning and literature. She was well-read. She was the wealthiest woman in the United States after, after her husband died because wow. of the fortune he left her. She, for example, started the Parent Teachers Association movement. Huh. She, she pushed the kindergarten movement in the United States. And she took the University of California as one of her projects, if you want to call it <laughs> that. And she began giving not only a significant amount of money, but a significant amount of influence to the mm. university. One of the things she did was she, she sponsored a um, contest for an architect to lay out the expansion, the big expansion of the university. It was $10,000, which was a lot of money in that day. And architects all over the Western world, including European architects, submitted. And some, for the first time, the university became known on the East Coast and in the West. Just, and just putting Berkeley on the map. Then. Yeah, it okay. put Berkeley on the map. Yeah. And, and um, eventually a French architect was, um, was chosen, but he didn't work out so well. So. So um, John Galen Howard was picked to be the university architect and to begin that, that period of tremendous expansion. And there's a lot of the kind of classic buildings that are on the Cal campus today were built over the following 20 or 25 years by John Galen Howard. Yeah, the Campanile, the Doe Library, um, Wheeler Hall. And so just by doing that, Doing that, she committed the university to, to to expansion, and it began expanding. Right. Well, and speaking of her influence on architecture, of course, she later went on to uh, be a sort of mentor of uh, Julia Morgan, who, of right. course, went on to be the one of the most famous women architects of all time. And um, 
many of her buildings are still just jewels, you know, sprinkled throughout the Bay Area, um, let alone her, her crowning achievement, the Hearst Castle down there in San Simeon. But again, a different story for a different day. So uh, getting back to the university and, and her influence and Benjamin Wheeler, uh, can you continue telling me about, uh, you know, why they're still so significant? She just gave money to a whole bunch of things, though. Cal had the second anthropology department in the United States because she gave money to Alfred Kroeber. And, mm. um, and, and she also was very, very in, in, interested in women students. She, had, she established a thing called the Phoebe's, a, a scholarship for women students. She decided that, you know, maybe they should have a women's gymnasium. And they said, but we don't have any women taking PE courses. And they said, oh, maybe we should now. And the first woman administrator was, was brought in under her. She began talking about, you know, maybe we should have a women's faculty club. And they said, but we don't have any women faculty. And they said, oh, <laughs> that's what she's talking about. So, I mean, it's, she's yeah. just had influence in a whole right. bunch of areas like right. that. And she was on the Board of Regents in 1899 when they chose their new president, Benjamin Ide Wheeler. And he's really the first really significant president the university had uh, in, in terms of actually being successful. And he came in, he was from the Ivy League, he was a, a scholar of German literature and, 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 and of classics as well. And he not only came in, but with the support, not only of, once Phoebe Hearst began giving money, a lot of other wealthy Californians did too. And the legislature began significantly increasing the amount of money it was giving to the university. And with this money, he began hiring really top kind of graduate students, young scholars from the Ivy League and bringing them out here. And a whole kind of generation of, of really big time university scholars and faculty members are hired under Wheeler's realm. And in 1919, uh, well, well, during World War One, at the beginning of World War One. Wheeler, who was actually a kind of pro-German, even though he, he rallied around the American war effort, that kind of finally weakened his, his public, you know, he was considered you know, a great public figure in, in mm -hmm. California at that time. And he was also... Oh, they thought maybe he was too loyal to the Kaiser? Right. <laughs> he, was also, he was also pretty much a tyrant over the faculty in many respects. Ah. He didn't necessarily believe in, in giving the faculty senate a lot mm -hmm. of freedom. And so that kind of gave them, gave his enemies a, a way to start attacking him. And so, and, and you know, the university did allow military training on the campus during World War I and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But still, in 1919, he retired, I think, under, under a lot of, and in 1919, Phoebe Apperson Hearst died. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, that, that Hearst Wheeler era was about 20 years from the end of the 1890s to the beginning of the 1920s. And by that time, I mean, there was still obviously a tremendous amount of growth and development of the university after that. But the idea of Cal being considered a major American university, the idea that it wasn't just another one of these Western Cal colleges had been established by that time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, you can't even begin to, to think of the image of Berkeley as a city without thinking of the image of Cal as this very prestigious world-class university. Yeah. And so just as Berkeley is being transformed into an urban area, at the same time the university is being transformed into something that's much more impressive mm -hmm. than it ever would have been before and, and impressive in the way that it was going to become in the future. So in the early 1900s, Berkeley's growing rapidly, business is booming, 
And in 1911, something interesting happened, which is that the people of Berkeley elected a socialist to be the town's mayor, a man named J. Stitt Wilson. Was that unusual for that time for a, a, a town like Berkeley to have a socialist mayor? And can you tell me a little bit about his tenure? Yeah, I mean, it, it was unusual in the sense that he was the only socialist party mayor of, of any kind of major city in California. And at that time, Berkeley was, I don't know, the sixth or seventh largest city in California. Wow. But on the other hand, it wasn't, it wasn't unusual for what was going on in the country at that mm. time. In the early 20th century, in some respects, it was a little bit like what's, what's, going, on, what's going on now. You had a reaction against the maldistribution of wealth, the tremendous power of corporations. Uh, growing and, inequality, corrupt uh, officials, and... All that stuff. Right, yeah, all the, stuff kind of the, the growth of the Gilded Age. Right. And one of, the, um, one of the results of that was, for a while, a, a real powerful socialist movement in America that, that involved not only organizing and talking about the revolution in the future, but part of that wing became part of the electoral process. You know, the Socialist Party, the National Socialist Party, and in, in, in the 1920 election, I think it, it got about 13% of the total presidential mm -hmm. election. Yeah. And Upton Sinclair came pretty close to becoming the governor of California. Well, that, that, that was, was a little, a little later. A little bit later, yeah. right. But, but there's been, there's been uh, waves of socialism yes. and, and, you know, sprinkled throughout U.S. history, which generally have been very uh, ruthlessly tamped down by yeah. the powers that be. But what happened in Berkeley? Uh, was, it, was it a progressive town back then or was this kind of an anomaly? Well, I, I, again, just, just one other yeah, point. Of I mean, Milwaukee, for example, did oh, elect right. a socialist yeah. mayor and, and they had a socialist regime for many years. Mm -hmm. um, in Lower East Side, New York, there was a, a socialist who I think got elected to, I think, the state legislature at least or mm -hmm. something. So, you know, you were at least a few socialists around the country were actually getting elected. Mm -hmm. In Los Angeles, the socialist candidate for mayor almost won in, I guess it was 1911 also. So there was this movement going on. In Berkeley, you had... Down in West Berkeley, you had this working class community. You had a, a working class, heavily immigrant and, and children of immigrant community. And they combined their kind of working class, in some cases, union consciousness with a kind of um, progressive um, moral group of reformers up and around the university. The good governance type Good people. governance yeah. types and people who, who were looking for, you know, a more moral government and progressive government, kind of intellectual socialists. Mm -hmm. And the combination of those two mm. groups overrode what was the traditional, pretty much conservative pro-business group that had run Berkeley. And their candidate was this guy, J. Stitt Wilson, who was a, a Protestant minister. His version of socialism was Christian socialist. Mm -hmm. He believed Jesus was the first socialist. Well, he did redistribute wealth. He did redistribute <laughs> wealth, and there's a Knocking lot of... Knocking over those uh, money changers in the temple. There, you know, there, you can take that a lot... That was like of, the first Occupy Wall Street. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there, there's a lot in the in in the New Testament that sounds a lot like, like, like socialism. Oh, yeah, exactly. Harder for a uh, rich man to get into heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, etc. Right. So, so he, and, and again, that was part of a national and even international movement. He also spent some time in, in Britain, uh, J. Stitt Wilson did. So, um, you know, he's part of this whole upheaval uh, that's going on. And I should say that the socialists like, 
like leftists today, there were also radical socialists who really looked down upon people like J. Stid Wilson, you know, and, yeah, and so there, right. there were huge yeah. conflicts within within the leftist movement. Yeah, but no, I was curious about that with the immigrant communities. I know there was thriving, like, you know, Italian anarchists spreading right. throughout the world and the, uh, you know, radical um, people, a lot of people from the Jewish community, you know, right. from the European uh, immigrants who came here and brought <laughs> radical leftist politics to the United States. Right, particularly particularly from Eastern Eastern yeah. and Southern Europe. Yeah, and Emma Goldman was over in San Francisco around the same time, yeah. a famous, yeah. you know, anarchist uh, right. intellectual. So, so, I mean, this all this ferment right. was going okay. on, but even, even people who may have disagreed with him were willing to vote for him. I mean, you know, this hmm. is something. Yeah. So he, he served two years as, as mayor of Oakland, uh, mayor of Berkeley. I mean, he was basically what he what he what he was advocating were, um, for example, to turn the transit system into public ownership. Uh, and San Francisco mm. actually established its muni around this time. Wow. Uh, of course, that that never happened in Berkeley. Uh, he was talking about uh, public ownership of the electrical grid. Yeah. For well, example, eventually we got AC Transit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but Bart. I, yeah, but again, it, yeah, it, it, that, right. that was a long time later. But I mean, so I mean, it was yeah. that was the kind of socialism. He, he right. was also very pro-union. But he also was very he was he was more than willing to to be a chamber of commerce, you know, booming Berkeley for business and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, too. Mm -hmm. um, after two years, though, he, he didn't run for reelection. What he did instead was he tried to run for Congress huh. and he ran against um, Joseph Nolan, who was mm -hmm. the Republican, a conservative Republican who eventually established or owned the, the Oakland the, Tribune. Uh, the power broker of the, the power of Oakland. Broker. Yeah, the, the Oakland Tribune, the uh, megaphone for conservatives right. throughout California for, for many decades. But I think, I think it was in 1912, or I can't remember, 1912 or 1914, Wilson actually got 40% of the vote against, against Nolan. Wow. In other words, he... he, he, yeah. he he got more than the Democratic candidate, and he, he came in, oh, in second. Oh, wow. So the, the people on the left kind of split their votes, and well, which gave the Republicans a, a chance to win, huh? But I think people like Wilson would say that the Democrats were no, the, at that time, the Democrats were, were not really the left. They were no, they were no different. But, gotcha. but anyway, it, it does show that for a little while it, in the Bay Area and, and in the country as a whole, mm -hmm. social... Socialist Party was a was a viable electoral alternative. Is is there any threads connecting that socialist era of Berkeley around you know 1911 or so to the later revolutionary and leftist and anti-imperialist politics that really emerged uh, and made Berkeley globally famous during the 1960s and 70s? Well, I think one of the, one of the similarities is that connection between flatlands, working class radicals or at least uh, rebels and campus and East Berkeley uh, maybe kind of more moral um, and ethical uh, reformers you know or, or reformers mm. on and I think you know just just as when when the Berkeley left comes to power in the 60s and 70s you have that combination of people university people and then it, by the 60s and 70s was often the black community in West Berkeley coming together to to elect Ron Dellums, for example. So there was that similar kind of a coalition. In terms of, I, I mean, it, you know, 1911 is way, way back. Right. But I think one, one of the things that, 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 that there is a connection, some of this political activism was ethnically related to immigrant groups. And one of the groups was the Finnish community, which by the turn of the century, Berkeley had a significant Finnish immigrant population. It was part of the working class West Berkeley. And at least one part of the Finnish population, the Finnish population in Berkeley had two Finnish meeting halls because mm. of their political <laughs> differences. 
But the socialist Finnish meeting hall, which still exists down on 10th Street in San huh. Francisco, or excuse me, down in, in Berkeley, on 10th Street in Berkeley, it was the origins of the Berkeley Co-op eventually in the 30s. But in the 1960s, the People's World, the Communist Party newspaper in the Bay Area had their offices in the Finnish, in the Berkeley Finnish um, meeting hall. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know, there is there is that maybe that that connection where you can say, boy, at least that, you know, all yeah. the, you go through generations and uh -huh. there, there, there still is that connection. Yeah. And you know, we've been we've been talking mostly about sort of European uh, immigrant communities. You know, you just mentioned the Finns, talked about the Irish immigrants uh, during the kind of first wave of Berkeley. What about um, you know non-white immigrant groups? I know there was a Chinese community uh, in West Berkeley. I've been on the Berkeley radical South Asian walking tour, uh, um, which is amazing. They've been doing that for, for years and years now, and they really get into the history of uh, South Asian people. Um, so yeah, what did what was the racial composition of Berkeley like during this transformational era? Well, it, it it's it's evolving during the time. Mm -hmm. when, one thing, just really briefly, for a while during that time, people like Finns or Catholic Irish were considered to be racial groups. Mm. In other words, so you had discrimination based upon East Berkeley or Berkeley Hills, white Protestant Americans looking down upon Italian and, or Irish yeah. or Yeah, well, as Portuguese. has been said many times, the definition of white and whiteness is constantly exactly. changing. Yeah. So, so even, even some of those European immigrant groups, they would turn around and discriminate against the Chinese, but they were themselves being discriminated against by other people in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. But um, even, even, you know, by, by the time Berkeley, by the time the, uh, the city of Berkeley was established in 1878, the Chinese were a really important part of California's population and particularly the Bay Area's population. And so there were Chinese in Berkeley. Uh, for example, that standard soap company for, for many, for a while, virtually all of its workers were Chinese because they could pay them less than if they had mm. white workers. Mm -hmm. Um, Chinese also, um, they were able to rent little plots of land in Berkeley and raise vegetables and stuff and then sell them. They would go around and sell them house to house. Chinese laundries were established mm -hmm. in Berkeley very early. In, in the 1878, when the first city election occurred, the party that won that election was the Working Man's Party. Mm. And the Working Man's Party in California at that time was, among other things, a very anti-Chinese party. Dennis Carney, the San Francisco demagogue yeah. was stirring up anti-Chinese, really violent anti-Chinese feeling. Yeah. And in Berkeley, you know, there, there are stories of Chinese carrying guns around with them because they, they feared wow. people would, would assault them. So the presence of non-European immigrants and the presence of, of really severe, significant racism towards the Chinese goes all the way back to the beginnings of Berkeley as a as an incorporated city. Yeah, and of course, much later, uh, Berkeley's Japanese community was uh, notoriously expelled during uh, World War II as they were rounded up for the, uh, you know, what were what were described as internment camps, but some people would call concentration camps. I've got a whole episode about Fred Korematsu and that uh, dark chapter in American history um, for people that want to know more about it. Um, were, were you going to say something else, though, Chuck? Well, uh, in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, mm. and that pretty much ended at least legal Chinese immigration. People still snuck in, mm -hmm. and that opened the door then f 
for the replacement of the Chinese and mm. California's labor force by Japanese immigrants. Ah, okay. and, and then, as you say, right. Berkeley established a pretty, a pretty well-established Japanese-American community by, by the 1910s or the 1920s. And that was the era in which um, restrictive covenants began to be developed, which were things attached to deeds that said you could not sell your house to a non-white person, to an Asian or a black person. Oh, yeah, and also the Berkeley was the first place to have single-family zoning as well, right? Yeah, Which yeah. has been it in the news a lot right lately. Out of my mouth. <laughs> and yeah, all it, these things that happened a century or more ago are kind of coming back now. Exactly. Is how do we undo these wrongs, these misdeeds of the past, and remedy that? So a lot of these new, particularly the upscale new neighborhoods that were being created by the key system, by the transit system, mm-hmm. neighborhoods like the Claremont District. Right developed by Duncan McDuffie and the, the Mason McDuffie company, they were considered restricted communities. And by that said, we were restricting them in the sense that um, we're having zoning, so you don't have to worry about a, a big steel plant being built right next to you. But we're also restricting them that you don't have to worry about a black person or an Asian person living next to you. And at the same time, you began to have the beginnings of a growing black community in Berkeley. That was just at the time that these zoning restrictions and even more dramatically the restrictive covenants were coming in. And so as early as 1920, just all non-white Berkeleyans, virtually all non-white Berkeleyans were living south of Dwight Way and west of west of Grove Street, at least what was now Martin Luther King, and probably even west of San, in some cases west of San Pablo. So you already had a residential segregation being established in Berkeley. And it applied to both the growing Japanese-American population and the growing black populations. These were still fairly small populations. So the neighborhoods that they lived in were actually ethnically mixed neighborhoods, but they were the only neighborhoods that non-white people could live in. They were living next door to what was often working class immigrant white people. Right, right. And it's just amazing to see how all these decades later, a lot of those patterns of racial segregation are still really prevalent. When you look at the current census maps of the ethnic distribution of where people live, it's really hard to to break up that uh, that pattern of, you know, economic segregation, essentially. Um, that is a huge topic. Uh, I've, I've gone into it in a couple episodes, and there's still a lot more to say on the on the matter. But we're trying to cover a lot of territory today. And one thing I want to make sure we get to is the neighborhood known as Nut Hill. Um, Berkeley famously is uh, kind of known for a sort of bohemian atmosphere. And I think Nut Hill really um, is kind of the origins of a lot of that uh, <laughs> reputation. So who were the people who lived up there, and what made them so... Uh, kind of well-known around town for, you know, some of their eccentric behavior and, and architectural concepts. I mean, to kind of understand it, so everything, it seems to me, everything about Bay Area history goes back to the gold rush in many respects. Mm. In the gold rush, you, you created this, this city, San Francisco, that was thousands of miles away from any other American city. And so almost what San Francisco also developed was its own counterculture, if you want to call it that, its own little community of writers and artists and people like that. Yeah, people Mark like Twain, Mark Twain. Mark Twain was yeah. part of that for mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. Bret Hart. I'll... My very fa- first episode was about Ina Coolbreth. Uh-huh. Yeah. The, the so, first poet laureate of yeah. California. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so and 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 so you, you, you developed this and then it was called Bohemian Lifestyle. And it develops in San Francisco. And then when Berkeley, particularly when the university comes here, 
and when Berkeley begins to develop, particularly as the Berkeley Hills develop, some of that same spirit also comes to Berkeley as Berkeley becomes part of that urban core of the Bay Area. I guess one of the, the most dramatic expression of that would be some of the Berkeley architects, and particularly, I mean, Julia Morgan and John Galen Howard, but particularly Bernard Maybeck. And he, his idea was, and, and he, he wasn't by no the only one who was doing this, but the idea was that you should build houses that fit into the land rather than stick out. He once said that the best, the best house that you could build would be a Berkeley Hillside with a few rooms around in case it rained, you know, but <laughs> that, that, that you build with nature. And that, you know, those were quite revolutionary ideas at the, at, at the time. And so I think he's just part of this Berkeley Bohemia, but he kind of, he kind of symbolizes maybe the best mm -hmm. of it in some mm -hmm. respects. And, um, you know, a group of, I guess today we'd call them counterculturalists. Or and this, this was all happening just kind of uphill from where we are right. now? Right. That, that as the Berkeley Hills developed in, you know, in that early 20th century, as these new transit lines get up there, the area kind of north of the campus, a little maybe oh, half a mile north of the campus, a hill up there, people like Maybeck settled there and others settled there and began to develop a kind of alternative lifestyle. They, they established something called the Hillside Club which kind of was the place in which they could, they had parties and dramatic presentations and stuff like mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. And it also kind of, they had, uh, they published um, pronouncements of their philosophies and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. They were really into that idea of sort of uh, the East Bay Berkeley as being kind of this new Athens, right? right. The Athens of the Pacific. There was this idea of the Athens of the Pacific. There was the idea and of... What, just before you go on from that, some people even took that idea so far right. as to... Well, you're, you can tell the story, but they were like walking around in togas and yeah. things like that? Well, there was one family called the Boyntons. <laughs> and I think Mr. Boynton was a... I believe he was a... I can't... I think he was a, a lawyer, a San Francisco lawyer. You know, he grew up put on a suit and go over to San Francisco every day. But he built a house called the Temple of the Wings. And it was like a Greek temple. Initially, it didn't really have rooms. It was open to the air. And they had canvases that they put out when it, when it, when it would rain. It was finally, just like a pavilion with like columns. Yeah, right, finally, they, had, they actually had to begin building some, some rooms on it. Bernard Maybeck started, started the... Uh, the architecture for that, but he and the Boyntons got into an argument, and that was really common among these people. But it's not like they're a, a they're they're often feuding against mm. each other in their counterculture yeah. activities. But uh, they would they would dress in they would dress in togas, they would dress in robes. They they ate just veg, they were vegetarians and even I guess vegans even you know wow. we we would say the kids when they got to when they got to school they they trade with their friends so they could get they could get a ham sandwich and stuff like that <laughs> and uh, but you know that uh, the Boyntons one of their daughters continued living in there really for the rest of her life uh, they, they became very much um, associated with um, uh, the dancer um, oh Isadora Duncan Isadora Duncan mm -hmm. and who, mother of modern dance mother of the modern dance and and uh, I guess Florence Boynton became a Acolyte that, and she taught modern modern dance up there for decades after decades. I think as late as the 1980s, she was still teaching modern dance wow. at the Temple of the Wings when she was like in her 90s. So it sounds like some of those these Bohemians were sort of the um, count, like you say, counterculture, but also really challenging kind of dominant ideologies. Were they sort of like the hippies of their era? Not 
Not exactly, I think, because, I, yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly a connection between this tradition, very much a tradition, of this tradition of bohemianism in the Bay Area, San Francisco and Berkeley, and the hippies, and later the, the Haight-Ashbury and all that stuff. There, there is a connection to them all. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people like Boynton were, you know, pretty well off. Uh, yeah. uh, Bernard Maybeck, you know, got some very, very large projects the multi you know believe what today would be multi-million dollar projects that he was working on so that a lot of them had their foot very much in the establishment but but at the same time they they lived these lives you know, but that yeah. but that doesn't mean at the same time that Berkeley didn't have a really a bunch of conservative mm -hmm. business people who were also running the city too so yeah the, the conflicts that grow up in the 60s between the left and the establishment those those conflicts maybe were not so political in Berkeley at this time, but they certainly were in terms of lifestyle. And it was it was not the people who lived in Nut Hill that called Nut Hill Nut Hill. <laughs> it, it was the other people who said a bunch of nuts live up there because gotcha. look, look at these gotcha. crazy lifestyles. Yeah, well, not, not to mention all the sex they were having and all that kind of all oh, that kind boy. of stuff. Oh boy, yeah, definitely. Well, hopefully, some people who are listening to this interview um, are going to be inspired to come check out Berkeley. You know, <laughs> folks who aren't from here, they might want to come for a little visit. So, if people are coming to see the best of Berkeley. Do you, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Chuck. Do you have like a favorite building or a favorite little stroll you like to do? Best view? Any recommendations for people who want, wow. who want to come kind of immerse themselves in Berkeley history and, and really get a feel for uh, the, the vibe that has made Berkeley such a destination? I think one, I mean, my favorite place would be to take a walk up in places in Tilden Park and, mm -hmm. and particularly mm -hmm. with you up in the hill so you can get a view of the whole city and, and looking down the bay. But I think to get a, the vibe of Berkeley particularly if you think of it historically, it, it, it's, it's too varied a city. There were, I think in a funny way now, it's, it's more homogeneous than it's almost ever been. Wow. But for most of Berkeley's history, there have been three or four or five different vibes going on at the same time. Hmm. You've had that basic, that basic thing between the flatlands and the hills, between the university and the community. But then you've also had counterculture advocates living just a few blocks away from wealthy businessmen, lifelong Republicans. Yeah. And so um, maybe it's that, that variety is, is part of the vibe, you know, that, that, yeah. that, it, that it isn't as, as I say, in a funny way, Berkeley may be more homogeneous now than it's ever been. Well, it's so expensive to live here exactly. now, to build here now, which certainly limits the amount of people that can come here, limits the diversity. Um, I know this is a show about history, not the future, but as someone who's deeply familiar with the history, who's lived here for a long time, are you worried about the future of Berkeley in terms of that affordability question, making this place more homogeneous? Well, I'm certainly worried, worried about that, not just about Berkeley, but the whole Bay Area, mm -hmm. and maybe all of California. Yeah. And in terms of the future, I mean, I, I, I'm worried about the future of all of this, and, you know, <laughs> global warming and that kind of stuff, and mm -hmm. Berkeley certainly is going to be affected by that. I mean, obviously, the future of Berkeley is very much dependent upon the future of the university. Right now, if you include the Lawrence Lab, the university employs more people than the next 10 largest employers in Berkeley combined. Wow. <laughs> so it's not just the leading employer, but, and, and I think that just gives you an idea, of, I mean, just from an economic point of view of how important the university is. But I mean, also so much of what we think of about the culture and the lifestyle and all that stuff of Berkeley, including uh, the protests against the university, all that is there because of the university. Yeah. 
I mean, there's always been great ambivalence about the university among Berkeley people. On the one hand, almost everybody who lives here in Berkeley is probably here either directly or indirectly because of the university. But at the same time, there is this sense that the university is this monster that's going to take over the city if we don't do something about it. And so that whole university community relationship has a lot to do with what the future of the city is going to be. And to the extent to the way in which the university develops inevitably is going to affect the way the, the rest of the city develops. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Charles Wallenberg, author of Berkeley, A City in History, and many other good books I should uh, mention. I can link to them uh, on my website when I post this interview. Thank you so much for joining me on East Bay yesterday today. Well, thank you. It was, it was a lot of fun. Excellent. All right, that'll do it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. If you liked this episode and you want to hear more on these topics, check out the Berkeley Historical Society. It's a very cool organization that I've learned a lot from over the years, uh, and they've currently got an exhibit up about Berkeley politics in the 1970s. Uh, that one's running through April, and I will link to all the details in the show notes at eastbayyesterday.com. Also, in case you haven't noticed, I've been trying to release more episodes than, uh, than usual lately, and the reason I've been able to do that is because of the people who support this show through my Patreon page. So if you're one of those amazingly generous folks, thank you, and uh, if you want to hear more East Bay Yesterday, you can become a supporter too. Uh, there's a link at my website, top right corner, eastbayyesterday.com, And uh, while you're there, you can also find links to all my Twitters, Instagrams, Facebooks, the newsletter, etc. for people who've been asking about my boat tours. They are currently sold out through the end of May, but I will be adding summer dates soon. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'll be announcing those tickets in my newsletter. The music for this episode today came from local producer Justin Lee. Thank you very much, Justin. Okay, that's going to do it. Thanks again for listening. And I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.